Thanks for checking out this message from Coastal Community Church. We hope it's helpful and encouraging. All right, good morning, everybody. You did all right, did all right. Well, um, welcome to Coastal. Uh, I am Pastor Chris, and uh, welcome to those of you who are watching online. Thank you for joining us and uh, staying engaged, our growing uh, online community, and uh, showing up with all these folks here in person. So I got a football here with me this morning. Uh, how many of you are excited uh, about football season right now? You're enjoying football season? Yeah, yeah. How many of you could care less about football? Uh, maybe you're a okay, yeah. Maybe you're a football widow during this season. I, I don't know. And there's there's no reason why I happen to have this Clemson signed football by Dabo Sweeney. It's just, you know, one of the footballs that I have. But um, I want to talk a little bit about, and by the way, so I didn't wear this because I'm a Clemson fan this morning. Uh, it's because I'm the great pumpkin. So that's what I dressed up as uh, today. But uh, whether you happen to be excited um, about football season or not, there, there is an aspect um, of football that introduces an important topic that I want to begin uh, talking about today. So the objective in football, you know, it's really quite simple, right? The offensive team wants to move move the ball down the field, uh, you know, to the goal line, get over the goal line in order to score, while the defensive team, of course, wants to stop them from doing so, right? Hey, by the way, the Tigers won yesterday too, right? Missouri, that is. Anyway, um, okay, so now... Part of the defensive strategy includes not only stopping the other person, uh, the other team with the ball, the, the other uh, uh, person with the ball, but also trying to create a turnover, right? To create a turnover, either by intercepting the ball or stripping the ball away from the offensive player. Now, numerous factors contribute to winning a football game, but a key factor is definitely, coaches will tell you, winning the turnover battle. And uh, of course, coaches, you know, preach to their players to, you know, take care of the football. Defensive players are told, you know, make a play, you know, make a big play and create a takeaway because, you know, just having one more offensive, you know, possession, one little extra possession can be a huge, huge difference uh, in the outcome of a game. Now, several years ago, in fact, the Miami Hurricanes uh, had this thing called uh, the turnover chain. Uh, the turnover chain. You might remember that. Um, if somebody on their defense created a turnover, um, as soon as they got to the sideline, uh, they were rewarded by getting to put on this gigantic gold gaudy uh, chain necklace uh, called the turnover chain. Um, yeah, it didn't really help them a whole lot. But anyway, um, now, as we have seen in our, by the way, so I'm going to give this football to Ricky. He is a Clemson fan, and I didn't tell him this, so hold on to that, Ricky. Catch it, catch it. Okay, he got it. Very good. Okay, now, um, so as we've seen in our study of the book of Romans, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, okay, the gift of salvation is now in our possession. Okay, it's our possession, and with it, we are headed toward the goal line of heaven, so to speak. And so the question that I want us to begin answering today is this. So can that salvation be stripped away before you cross the goal line and enter into the glory of heaven? Can it be taken away? Now, the way you answer that question will affect the way you live your life as a believer. 
In other words, if you're, you know, if you're constantly, you know, worrying about whether or not you're going to make it, you know, uh, whether or not you're going to lose your salvation, if you're, you're always wondering whether or not it could be taken away from you, then you're going to be running around in this life in circles, you know, uh, in constant fear and constant worry about whether or not somebody or something or some sin in your life is going to strip, you know, take away uh, your salvation. Listen, God never intended for believers to live that way. Isaiah 32, 17 says this, the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. In other words, when when our God grants righteousness, he also gives us his peace and that confident assurance. And you say, well, Pastor Chris, you know, when it comes to our salvation, Just how confident and assured can we be? Well, that brings us to chapter 5 in the book of Romans. This chapter represents some of Paul's uh, most profound teaching on this particular subject. And to kind of see this passage for what it is, we need to remember how this uh, part of Scripture fits into the whole of the book of Romans. Now, if you remember, if you've been in the series with us, Paul spent like the first three chapters bringing us to the conclusion that basically the entire world, all of us, you and me, we are all guilty before God, standing underneath his wrath because of our sin. So that's the bad news, okay? That's the bad news. We're we're sinners in need of a Savior. But the good news is that God has done something about that. He's done something about our plight. Romans 3, 24, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. In other words, salvation, this possession that we have in Christ, it can be gained one way and only one way. It has to be received as a gift that comes to us by his grace through our faith in his one and only son. Now, that being the case, Paul anticipated that his readers then and now would immediately have a question about this newfound salvation. Under what conditions is it preserved? Under what conditions is it kept? In other words, okay, Pastor Chris, I get it. I know, I understand that I am saved by God's grace But, does he continue to keep me by his grace? Or do I have to keep myself? Do I have to maintain my own salvation through my good works? In other words, will you and I win the turnover battle? Will our salvation be stripped away? Now, I want you to think through that for just a moment. So, if the preservation of your salvation depends on what you do or don't do, then grace and assurance goes right out the window. Because whenever you have a theology that involves human effort, your own works, your own goodness for salvation, there can be no true security, no true assurance. Even worse, according to that particular view, Believers then have to protect by their own power what Jesus began by his divine power. 
You know, we're not saved by divine grace and then preserved by our own human effort. In Galatians, Paul wrote uh, to the believers to combat this, this false doctrine. In Galatians 3.3, he said, How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? In other words, that's ridiculous. He says it's foolish. The same grace that saves you keeps you. 1 Peter 1.5 says, and through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Or even more powerful. How about the very words of Jesus himself in John 10? Listen to this. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one. What's it say? Who? No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Now, that's the heart of Paul's message here in Romans chapter 5. In fact, Romans chapter 5 begins with the word, therefore. Somebody once told me in Bible college, anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what's it there for, okay? And it's a big reason. So for four chapters now, Paul has been telling us how we are made right with God. Remember how we are justified by faith, not by works, not by our performance, not through religion or ceremony, but through faith alone in Christ alone. And now in chapter 5, he says, therefore, and it's a big therefore, he, he begins to tell us all that we have in Christ and why it can never be taken away, why it can never be stripped away. And it's a very powerful section. Now, because we've been made right with God through faith in Christ, he says we have basically these five things and these five things are, are part of the basis, part of the foundation for the assurance of our salvation. Number one, we have peace with God. If you're taking notes, write that down. We have peace with God. Again, look at verse one. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord, has done for us. Now, one of the immediate results of being made right with God, being made justified by God by faith, is peace. Peace with God. Now, the reality is, apart from saving faith, apart from salvation, every human being, okay, Again, this is you and I, everybody, before Christ, before salvation, we are spiritually separated, alienated from God. In other words, apart from Jesus, we, the Bible teaches, are at war with God. We're at war with him. And that is a battle you are never going to win. However, when you trust in Christ for your salvation, that alienation, that, that separation, that war is ended for all eternity. And now you have peace with God. It is permanent, it is irrevocable because it is based on what Jesus did for you. It's, it's not based on what you and I do. It's based on what Jesus has done and your acceptance of it. 
Now, I distinctly remember the day that I became a Christian. 13 years old, Camp Edisto, Thursday night. You know, I, I felt like this huge, huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And I've talked to many of you. I've talked to many people who've said they, they, they've experienced the same thing. They've felt the same thing. And even as a 13-year-old, I felt like this burden had been lifted from me. You know what it was? It was the weight of my sin. It was the weight of my guilt. And when that weight was taken off from me, I suddenly felt the peace that I had never known before. I'm at peace with God. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf, on your behalf, on my behalf. In other words, right at this moment, right now, Jesus is before the Father interceding for you and, and for me. And so our security, our salvation, it is rooted in that. You know, to say that it can be taken away, to say that it can be stripped away from us is to say that Jesus' prayers fail in their purpose. It's to say that Jesus himself is a liar. We've been made right with God. We have peace with God. Number two, because we've been made right with God, we also have secure standing. A secure standing. Look at the way Paul describes it in verse two. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. I want you to kind of circle that phrase there, underline it, brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. Okay, in Greek, the phrase there, really it's one word and it means the freedom or the right to enter. It means You've been granted access, you know, undeserved access, the freedom, the right to enter. Now, that would have blown Paul's first century Jewish writers away. And I think we miss a little bit of this today in 2022 because for the Jewish people, this idea of having unhindered direct access to God was absolutely unthinkable. I mean, for them to see God face to face meant to die on the spot. In fact, after the tabernacle was built and then later the temple, these very, very strict boundaries were set on who could enter into the presence of, of God. Gentiles could only go to the outer confines and no further. Jewish men and women could go beyond the Gentile limit, but not a lot further. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies where God would manifest his divine presence but only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even the high priest would lose his life if he entered in an unworthy manner. In fact, in Exodus uh, 28.35, it tells us that actual bells were sewn onto the bottom of his garments that he wore. And if the sounds of those bells ever stopped... You know, while he was in the Holy of Holies, the people on the outside, they knew that God had struck him dead, that he is gone. So Paul is stating here, he's saying that the death of Jesus, you know, the crucifixion of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, through his atoning sacrifice, God the Father put an end to all of that. And now God is accessible to anyone. Jew or Gentile. In fact, during the crucifixion of Jesus, God graphically illustrates this truth by tearing the temple curtain, the veil 
from top to bottom, in half, split it in half. And it's the veil that separated the people from God. And it forever symbolized that this barrier that separated God from everybody else, that now it's completely gone. You know, completely gone. I want you, everybody do me a favor, look up on the screen, and I want you to take a look at this picture. It's kind of an old picture. You might remember it back from newsreels and way, way, way back in the day. Maybe you've seen it, you know, periodically. It's the picture of JFK, okay, uh, President of the United States. He's in the Oval Office, and he's with his two-year-old son at the time, JFK Jr. And what's he doing there? He's playing fort, you know, underneath his dad's desk. Now, I want you to put that picture into perspective for just a moment. So his dad is the president of the United States. There are all kinds of world leaders who would make appointments to meet with the president, who would meet with President Kennedy weeks, even months ahead of time. And yet, here's this two-year-old little boy you know, who used the desk of the most powerful person on the planet as a play for it. But we all know why, right? He had what? Access. He had undeserved privilege. Why? Because of his relationship. He didn't have to make an appointment. He didn't have to wait for months to see his daddy, right? He wasn't afraid to run in and jump into his lap. There was complete openness and access now between father and child. Don't you see? That's exactly what Paul is saying here. That's what you have. That's what I have. We don't have to go between anybody else anymore. There's nothing, you know, keeping us from God our Father. You know, you don't have to go before a priest. You don't have, there, there's nothing, you know, keeping you from, from just being with your dad, You know, that's what we have. Because we have been made right with God, we have this remarkable freedom and access, and we can enjoy this standing in his grace. And it can't be taken away. Number three, we also have the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Look at the rest of verse two and uh, through verse four. It says, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance helps us help develop strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So what's he saying here? He's basically saying that you and I as believers in Christ, we have no reason whatsoever to fear the future. And we have every reason, actually, to rejoice in it. Because our ultimate destiny is not six feet underground. It's not in an urn on, your, on some family member's mantle years from now. Your ultimate destiny is to share in the glory of God. It is heaven. It's heaven. We are going to heaven one day. You don't have to fear anything. This world is not our home. And then he goes further. He says, in, a, in addition to rejoicing to that one day. And listen, I don't know about you, but the older I get and the more crazy and weird and, and evil this world gets, heaven is, becomes sweeter and sweeter in my mind. That's my home. That's where I'm headed. But in addition to that, Paul says that we actually have reason to rejoice right now. 
here and now, even in our present sufferings, in, in our present hardships, on this side of eternity. Now, Paul hasn't lost his mind here, okay? He's not flipped out. He's basically saying that as a Christian, you are able to rejoice and thank God for your problems and hardships, but, but not just for them, but in them. Sometimes you can't thank God for them. It's hard. Cancer is evil. Cancer is bad. You, you can't thank God for cancer, but rather we have the ability to thank God in, in our problems, in our hardships, through them. In other words, when they happen, and they will, you know, this is not heaven. This is this side of eternity. When hardships, when pain, when difficulty comes, when we go through it, we can still rejoice because we have a different perspective. It's because we have peace with God. We have access to him. We have the hope of glory. We know that this world is not our home. So we can still rejoice. You know, the, the, the reason that we can face things like cancer and disease and death or you know, any other adversity or hardship that might come our way in, in this world is because we know what's coming. You know, we can see the one who is invisible. We walk by faith and not by sight. We're able to see beyond and it enables us to rejoice in the middle of our sufferings. And as we walk through it, we learn that we don't walk alone, that his presence is there, his strength is there, his people are there to walk with us arm in arm, and in the process, we can become more and more like Jesus. Again, he's, he's not saying that, you know, that, we're, that we always thank or rejoice God for the problem, but rather we can thank him in it, through it. Number four. We also have a divine love, a divine love. Look at verse five. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we, we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You know, when a person is saved through Christ, he or she enters into a spiritual love relationship with God and it lasts for all eternity. In fact, Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. There is this immediate witness in our hearts that God loves us. And I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul describes that witness in our hearts in Ephesians chapter three. Listen to this. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, his, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So Paul is telling us in Romans that God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And here in Ephesians, that the Holy Spirit enables us just to, to know and experience a love that's too great to completely understand. In the book uh, Leadership Jazz by 
uh, Max Deeper. He tells this story, and I want to share it with you this morning. He writes, Esther, Esther, my wife and I have a granddaughter named Zoe. She was born prematurely and weighed one pound, seven ounces. The neonatologist who first examined her told us that she had a 5 to 10% 5 to 10% chance of living for 3 days. To complicate matters, Zoe's biological father had jumped ship the month before Zoe was born. Realizing all this, a wise and caring nurse named Ruth gave me, her grandfather, these instructions. For the next several months, you are now the surrogate father. I want you to come to the hospital every day to visit Zoe. And when you come, I want you to rub her, her body and her legs and her arms with just the, the tip of your finger. And while you're caressing her, you should tell her over and over and over again how much you love her. Because she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. You know, for us to be able to truly experience the assurance of our salvation, the love of God. God knew that we also needed his voice and his touch. And so he gave us not only his word, the word of God, but he also gave us his son. And he's given us not only Jesus, his son, but also his body, the church. And added to that, Paul says that he's now given given us his love by pouring it directly into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And what's more, the the Greek word there that's translated fill in verse five, it means a lavish outpouring to the point of overflowing. And you know, when, when you think about the helplessness of a little premature baby struggling for life in the NICU, totally dependent upon other people for survival, others than, than itself. You know, that, that doesn't touch, that, that picture in your mind doesn't touch the utter state of helplessness that you and I were in before we met Christ. Look at verses six through eight. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Don't you see? Paul is describing here one of the greatest examples of love in all of history, in all eternity. He reminds us that while we were ungodly sinners, totally unworthy of his love, powerless to escape from our sin, utterly helpless to change our situation, God sent his one and only son to pay the penalty for our sin and to die in your place. Listen, there's no way to explain that or understand it apart from the great, great love of God. His great love for you, for me. And if, and if all those four things are not enough, I mean, look back at your outline. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We have the hope of glory now and into the future. And we have God's divine love. 
Paul mentions one more thing in this passage that we have in Christ. And it gives us the assurance of our salvation. Number five, we've been made friends with God. We're friends with God. Look at verse nine. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now stop there for just a second. Paul's making the point here that since God has the power and the will to redeem us in the first place, he uses this phrase, he certainly has the power and the will to keep us redeemed. Verse 10, for since our, what, what's the word? For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly, there's that word again, certainly be saved through the life of his son. Paul is saying that since God has already made sure of our rescue from sin and death and future judgment, how can our salvation possibly be in jeopardy? Verse 11, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us, what? Friends. Friends of God. You know, last week we talked about Abraham, you know, being a great example to everyone. He's our spiritual father, you know, in Christ in Romans chapter 4. In fact, in James 2, 23, it tells us, and so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of our faith, because of his faith. So we talked about last week. He was even called the friend of God, just like Abraham You know, when you place your faith in Christ, you become God's friend, his friend. Now, this that might not be any more important or maybe any more profound than all the others on this list this morning, but it sure is beautiful. It is. We can rejoice. We have joy. Why? Because we're friends with God, and that relationship has been restored. I want to tell you another story. It's a true story. It was Sunday, uh, August 16th, 1987. Northwest Airlines Flight 255 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport. Everyone was killed. Pilot, staff, passengers, 155 people were killed except one survivor. One survivor, a four-year-old little girl from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. Now, what's interesting, news accounts from that story um, revealed that when the rescuers found her, they actually didn't think that she had been on the plane. They just first assumed that uh, Cecilia had been, you know, maybe a passenger in one of the cars on the highway on which the plane had crashed. But then, as the investigation you know, wore on, and the passenger log for the flight was checked, there she was. There was Cecilia's name. And from their report, Cecilia survived because evidently as the plane was falling, her mother unbuckled her own seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of that little girl, and wrapped her arms and her body around Cecilia and then would not let her go. Nothing 
could separate that child from her parents' love. Not tragedy, not disaster, not that fall, not the flames that followed, not the height or the depth or life or death. That is the kind of love that our God has for you. He has given us his one and only son, Jesus, who left all the glory of heaven and he humbled himself, he lowered himself and he covered us with the sacrifice of his own body and his own blood to save you. And it cannot be stripped away. In fact, beginning in Romans 8, 35, Paul said it like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We win the takeover battle. Satan might might try anything in his power to strip away what is rightfully ours, not because of who we are or because of what we have done, but because we have placed our faith in the one who did it all. And it can't be stripped away. That's something to celebrate. What became ours by his divine power is kept and held by his divine power until one day we see him face to face. Isn't that good news? Listen, I hope and pray today that if you are a believer and you're running around in worry or fear that somehow, some way, what it wasn't yours by your own good works, you know, is now you, you got this feeling that you got to keep it and you got to maintain it through your good works. Listen, you want to now do good because you are saved, not so that you will be. It's because you are. And maybe you haven't crossed a, that line of faith yet yourself. Listen, our God loves you. Even at your very worst, he gave you his very, very best. And he's just waiting for you to take that that step of faith and to come home. And then you will be in the Father's hands and nothing can take you out. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, today we thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus who has secured our salvation. And I know, Father, sometimes as believers, we, um, we forget that um, our salvation is secure. We forget about the assurance of our, of our salvation. I thank you for Paul's reminder of that today, that we have access, that we have standing, that we have this divine love, that we have peace, all of these things and so much more. And listen, if you are here today and you're ready to come home, if you are ready to, to cross that line of faith, to give your life to Jesus. Just pour your heart out to him right now. It's as simple and as beautiful as a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I admit it. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. 
And as much as I know how, as much as I understand, I believe that one was provided. It is your son, Jesus. And today, I, I humbly bow the knee and I surrender. I, I ask him to, to be my Savior, to be my Lord, to forgive me. And Father, for the rest of my life, until one day I do see you face to face, or you come home, or you call me home, I just want to follow Jesus. Day by day, I want to become more and more like you see me now. Forgiven, perfect, righteous because of Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, have a blessed day.